Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to interview some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. This podcast is made possible by the innovative team behind Peak Fishing. I use a peak vise for my fly tying and can say with authenticity that these vices are designed for optimal functionality and efficiency all while keeping a low price point for the consumer. I suppose this could be expected by a company whose sole designers are mechanical engineers who also fly fish. Look for a list of prices and dealers at www.peakfishing.com. That's peak, P-E-A-K, fishing.com. Ken Morish is the guy you know, but might not realize you know. The man behind the highly successful booking agency, Flywater Travel, the designer of countless mainstream flies, photographer, writer, angler, and just all-around likable guy. You've likely seen his photos or fished his flies without even knowing that he was the artist behind them. I met with Ken during his stay in Terrace, BC for a late-night chat about his start in the industry, his take on the saturation of booking agents today, and his focus on improving watersheds in need. I was uh, I was born and raised in Oakland, California, of all places. Hollywood. Yeah, exactly. Raider Nation, and uh, yeah, sort of Oakland, Berkeley, and that's that's where I grew up as a kid. And fortunately, I, I grew up uh, in a family where fly fishing was already a big part of it from earlier generations. So it's not like I just came up with that by myself, but my dad was a, a big fly angler, and 
So was his father, and even one generation before that, uh, the the first, my, my great-grandfather was born in a small mining town in California in the well, foothills of the Sierra on the Yuba River, and he was the first one to really become a, a fly fisherman. And so, yeah, it was something that ran in our family. And uh, despite living in Oakland, continued on. So what era was that approximately with your ancestors? Well, yeah, the, uh, my, my family on my dad's side first immigrated into California in the 1870s to be, yeah, hard rock gold miners. So they wow. came over from uh, Cornwall and, uh, and then they became hard rock gold miners in the, in the Sierra Nevada. And so my great grandfather was the first of the Moorishes to be born in California. And he's the guy who became really fond of fly fishing. And I've actually seen old footage of him fishing and, and it's amazing. He fished two flies and he fished really fast pocket water. And when I watched him fishing, you know, I'm looking at this going, wow, you know, we, we think that high stick nymphing or check nymphing, yeah. all these things are new. And, and while they are to a degree, he was fishing that exact same way, super short, exacting lines, but typically with a, a dropper dry dangling above or on the surface and a wet in the surface, but not deep. But, uh, yeah, that's how that's how they did a lot of fishing, and my grandfather became a uh, a fishing guide when he was fourteen years old in the Sierras, and you know spent his first summers earnings buying a a Leonard rod and a Hardy reel, and I still have his old Leonard. It's just you know beat to beat to death and. Uh, broken and missing guides and but he fished it his whole life and 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 so yeah and that passed on to my dad so i always say we had something good to speak about family gatherings of, yeah. yeah christmas and thanksgiving uh we we fished together and i got to fish with my grandfather and my father as a young kid so that was that was pretty special too that is yeah so i'm right in the middle of john shuey's book right now mm. have you read his traditional steelhead fly book no i know it's out there and it's highly regarded uh, but i haven't uh, and i know john and i'm sure it's it's lovely but i haven't well, read it i'm just in the beginning right now but i'm reading about the history of california mm. and and when all the gold Panners or yeah, it was just the gold rush. Yeah, there was panners and dredgers and yeah. everything in between. Yeah. So reading the history and 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 reading about all these guys who started to discover the steelhead fishing, it's fascinating. So your great great grandpa, my great was the first fly angler uh, in the family, and 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 he was the first one born in California. Oh, okay, so the your his father didn't fly fish, right? He just mined. Got Okay. You know, oh, got black that. lung and mind and <laughs> right. shit like that. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And, uh, but my grandfather, uh, uh, my namesake, uh, Kendrick Morris, he was a lifelong fly fisher and, and he was really involved in early California steelhead fishing. Right. And, you know, was a member of the Golden Gate Casting Club when they came up with, you know, they invented the double hull there, and and so yeah, he was into it. You know, he was 
He was fishing steelhead, you know, really intentionally fishing steelhead starting in about 1921. Wow, that's still really early. Yeah, and he would come all the way up to the Klamath, and it would take him from from San Francisco Bay Area, you know, it would take him, take him days to get there. And, uh, had it just in a horse and carriage? No, they had they had a beater, you know. That was a model, really ignorant question. Mo- <laughs> no, they had like beater model A's, I think, or, or no T's, model T's, and they would they would bang their way up there. And, well, how many kilometers is it for it to take days? Oh, it would be it would be three more than three. 150 miles. Oh, that's why it took so long. Yeah, because okay. California's a big state. You know, it's 900 miles long, and uh, yeah, they had to go more than a third of it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so, yeah, he fished uh, a lot of the rivers there, but mainly, uh, yeah, Klamath, Eel, Russian, and all these rivers were, were really brilliant streams at one point in time, despite okay. gold mining, which was really, really hard on them. Did you get to see them be excellent? I mean, I'm going to ask you a personal question. How old are you? Uh, I am uh, just about to be 49, and so I was born in 66. And so, no, I didn't really see um, a lot of it when it was excellent. There was still great fishing going on, but uh, I became more involved and more seriously focused on fly fishing and anadromous fish. You know, after turning 20. And I still had fished before then. And, you know, I fished the Klamath and things real early on and was, was out there even when I was a real little kid. But, uh, but I wasn't involved enough in the really serious sea run fishing to watch the collapse. Oh, okay. It happened during my life, but I just wasn't a participant. Now, your dad is still a fly fisherman. Yes, he's 84, and uh, yeah, we'll be fishing together in a couple days uh, up here. Well, we're here right now in Terrace, B.C., Yeah. and I don't know if the world knows, well, I'm sure the world knows this about you, but you are a hell of a steelhead fisherman, and I want to talk a little bit about that um, and, and how you came to travel to B.C. I mean, when did you first come here? I don't know. I think I probably came here, well, I came here first, you know, roughly 25 years ago. So in my early 20s, and I was always interested in steelhead fishing, you know, my grandfather had come here in the early 60s. You know, he fished at the top end of the Sustat when that was still legal. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and he... Uh, and he and my father fished the Dean, you know, very early on. And it wasn't that they continued going, but, you know, they, they got to go to some interesting places first. And ever since I was a little kid, you know, I would ask my dad, well, what's your favorite fish? And he's like, oh, steelhead, you know, there wasn't any, and there was no question about it. And my dad's, you know, he's a perfect steelheader because he's just stubborn as hell. And, you know, he'll, he'll go hard under tough conditions. And that's what always was the best for him. So I was like, well, that rubbed off on me. And I was like, well, I guess I got to get after that. And when I decided to go to college, I, uh, I tried to pick a school where I might have a chance of catching a, a big steelhead. And that's what led me to go to school in Portland, Oregon, as opposed to, you know, staying in California or something like that. I think I've heard that story from a few <laughs> of you guys before. <laughs> so what did you go to college for? Oh, to meet chicks. 
<laughs> you make me spit up my coffee all over you. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> no, to to study English and yeah, philosophy and and remedial algebra. Uh, what uh, did you take mm. in? Co- oh no, that that could go the wrong way too. <laughs> what What did you get your degree in? Did you get your degree? I did. I oh, did. Thank yeah, god, I, I finally found the, the, okay. Yeah, the, the biggest mistake was completing <laughs> college in four years. I didn't know what a fool I was being. I, I would have stayed longer had I had I known. But uh, no, I studied uh, I studied English primarily. Well, you did. Yep. And what was your end goal? Uh, I had no end goal. You know, I basically took uh, a pretty expensive private school education and then became a fishing guide in Alaska. Oh, after you that. did. Yeah. Okay. And fortunately, my family wasn't disgusted by that and my dad has always been good about saying hey you know follow what you're interested in and and if you can connect enough things that you're interested in it might lead you in a workable path and and so and and so if I was into taking pictures or time flies or fishing for steelhead or whatever other fish he hoped that someday that that would come together for me. So while you're in Alaska guiding, what was your revelation? What did you decide you wanted to do? Well, you know, it was interesting. Before I went to Alaska, I spent I spent most of my junior year of college in Nepal and I lived with a family there and I was it was part of a student exchange and I had the opportunity to walk from India to the Tibetan border. It was a 60-day trip, and I had lots of time to think and enjoy myself on the trail, and and one day I sort of had an epiphany, and I was like, you know, I want to learn how to fly fish well. I mean, I'd always fly fished a lot, and I could cast, and I could tie, but like, oh, catching fish was tougher, right? You Mm -hmm. know, and and my dad and I sort of beat our brains out uh, the hard way. We rarely had guidance of any sort, and, uh, and I was like, no, I want to. I want to learn how to fly fish well. I want to. I want to be like those people in the magazines who catch nice ones. You know, I want to. I want to do that. And <laughs> and so when I graduated from college, I went to Alaska and started guiding. And then when I came back, I had some new skills, and I became really involved in fishing in California, and and I guided there. Oh, you did guide in California, too. I did. I I guided, and I taught classes, and I worked retail. I worked in a shop called uh, uh, Fly Fishing Outfitters that was run by a guy named Pete Woolley, and... uh, yeah, from there I just traveled. I, I put a lot of miles on the car and, and got more and more involved in there. And it's not like I had a path. It's just like I like fishing. And uh, yeah, uh, and and I'd been on that fishing course from from earlier mentors. Even you know since I was quite young, I I learned to tie flies from a bunch of guys that were influenced by a man named Andre Puyans or mm. Andy Puyans and, mm-hmm. and Puyans was one of the fly fishing greats and he was not always liked by everyone he was a, a wild character and he was very good to those that he liked and he was sort of awful to those that he didn't oh, like okay. and he was a uh, heavy drinker and you know uh, had issues with other substances as well but he was tremendously gifted 
And, you know, he gave me my first fishing rod when I was a little kid. And he and my dad used to be buddies, but my dad is, you know, a really clean straight guy and Puyans was a lot of a lot of crooks and curves in in, 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 in his path, but a really dynamic, wonderful guy. And right. and so while my father and he fell out, I stayed close with Andy and my mom stayed close with Andy. And so I would go out there and and, and learn tying and casting and I got to through a club that he helped, you know, I got to go compete and fly tying contests and casting contests at Federation of Fly Fisher Conclaves as a little kid, you know, when I was 12 and 13 and got to go see the Rockies for the first time. So that was a a big part of my early growing up. And so when I got into guiding in Alaska, I already had a really good foundation and I just, you know, finally got a little bit better at actually catching fish as opposed to just fishing hard. (laughs) So when was the transition then from guiding and and really figuring out how to be a great fisherman into being an industry man? Because, Ken, you are an industry guy, like through and through. I've never been able to hold a job outside of the industry. That's that's for sure. That's been challenging. I tried for a few months and it didn't, didn't work well, but... Yeah, I always say I'm unemployable outside of this industry, and, and I'm I'm fine with that. I I, I love this industry, and uh, and I'm I'm lucky to have found a path in it. But you know that that was a long course. Also, I did multiple seasons in Alaska. I did retail. You know, then I went up to Seattle after sort of this dark period of not having a job and living with my parents upstairs and living with my girlfriend with my parents and that uh, oh, it was got extreme. Yeah, it got it got ugly and <laughs> and uh and I had a like I say a brief stint outside of fly fishing that lasted a I don't know, maybe three or four months and it was miserable and I never made any money. What was it? I was trying to sell like uh, industrial water filters to companies <laughs> that used bottled water and I was never going to use this filter instead and save a Sounds bunch of money. Sounds revitalizing. Yeah, and I never, I never made a sale. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so right in the midst of that, I... Uh, I became reacquainted with someone I always knew of, a guy, a a really eccentric Japanese tackle and and designer named Henry Haneda, or Hisatsugu Haneda was his full name. And he had come to visit Puyans many times, and he came to the States, and somehow my mom bumped into him at Puyan's shop and he didn't have a place to stay so he came and stayed at our house but I wasn't there that time but when he came back to town he was looking for someone to start to to help him with his rod building business in Seattle and I was hating life uh, doing what I was trying to do and so (laughs) I uh, got back into fly fishing and I moved up to Seattle and Henry and I built really high-end multi-modulus graphite rods with helical cores and and we we sold them for we exported almost all of them to japan and they were hand finished with cashew lacquer and silk and i made you know sterling silver hook keepers and they were super cool rods i still fish with one of them all the time and uh 
But, you know, back then in the 90s, you know, we were selling these for $1,200. They were the wow. price of cane rods. and American dollars. Yeah. And, oh. and they were, and, and, and even doing that, I think, I assumed that we were losing money. And and while I was doing that, uh, I coincidentally met George Cook because he was the Struble rep and also the Sage rep at the time. And I had set up a meeting for Henry and I to meet George. And Henry was such a strange fellow that... When he called on us, I suggested to Henry that I go down to the bottom of the uh, the apartment uh, and meet him in the lobby and greet him and bring him up. And I basically uh, got in the uh, elevator with George and I said, George, you know, my name's Kenny and uh, we're going to go upstairs and this is going to be a bizarre experience because <laughs> Henry's a bizarre dude. Okay. And... and uh, and so he said, great, I appreciate the warning. And, uh, and we had a meeting up there with Henry and we bought some stuff. And from that, George remembered me. And when a gentleman was opening a fly shop in Ashland, Oregon, he needed a manager and he'd gone through a couple of options and it hadn't, uh, he didn't like any of the folks he interviewed and he called George and asked his advice, and George just said, oh, I don't know, I met this guy in Seattle, try him. And so I went down to meet him in Oregon, and I was like, I'll go down and meet him. You know, uh, the, the rod building gig with Henry hadn't uh, worked out financially very well, and you know, he owed me $8,000 in unpaid wages, and I was fishing on the peninsula all the time because he couldn't pay me, and, and <laughs> right. so I was, in a, uh, I was ready for a change. And so I ended up in Ashland, Oregon, meeting this guy, Steve Rowe, and uh, from there, uh, well, I knew it was close to some streams I liked in Northern California, like trout fishing streams and McLeod and stuff like that, and I was like, okay, yeah, come down there. And so my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife... Is this uh, the one who was living with your parents? Uh, yes. Awesome. She, she tolerated that uh, just long She's enough. She's a keeper. To, yeah, and so we moved down from Seattle to, to Oregon in 94, I think, and we ran an outdoor store which had a fly shop as part of it for six years. And at the end of that time, I was approached by another guy that I'd met earlier in the industry, a guy named Brad Jackson, who was the co-founder of the fly shop in Redding, California. Uh, and so he had run the fly shop with his partner, Mike Mitchellack, for 10 years and after 10 years, they were no longer fond of each other. They parted ways, and Brad Jackson was on a 10-year non-compete. Oh. Pretty significant non-compete. for the huge non-compete. Yeah, for the fly fishing industry, maybe, maybe wow. unprecedented. And at I'll give the, someone 10 days. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so at the end of his non-compete, Jackson thought to himself, hey, you know, I'd like to become involved in fly fishing again. He'd become a, a stockbroker and, you know, a money manager. And, uh, and he had also been searching around for someone who might run a company like this that he could be 
involved with in a real peripheral sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so, yeah, he, I was, uh, so he and I bumped into each other at a fly tackle dealer show in Denver, and uh, and we bumped into each other a couple times before, and he gave me a call and he said, hey, I got this idea, I'd like to start a travel company, but I don't really want to start it. I'm very happy doing what I do, but I, but I think that there's an opportunity. Okay. And would you be interested in doing that? And I said, well, I would be if I could do it in a partnership context where I had a partner. And why? What was so appealing about a partner for you? Was it all? Was it strictly from a monetary standpoint? Nope. It was about. It was really about my lack of skills in terms of running a business from start to finish. I have a. I have. I have a set of skills, uh, and you know, I could, at that time I could write and I could take pictures and I could tie and I had a you know. A, I had a lot of experience in the industry by that time, and I had you know a, a, some credibility and some reputation. But, you know, when it comes to doing the accounting and, you know, setting up a business and really growing a business in terms of systems, I knew I was weak. I was good at building relationships, but I knew I needed someone who had a completely different skill set than I did to to make this go. Smart. Yeah. And so I, and of all my relations, I only knew one guy who... Uh, Brian Geese, who uh, had earlier been actually a, a student of mine in some fishing classes, and he and I had hit it off and had a great friendship. And I called him. I said, "Dude, do you want to do this with me?" And he said, "Yes." And so then we said yes, and and we ended up structuring the company in a way far different than Brad Jackson had envisioned, but one that really put Brian and I on the line for everything and also uh, put the vast majority of the ownership in our hands. So that's how we ended up starting Flywater. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we begged, borrowed, and stole a hundred <laughs> grand total, and we spent a year traveling the world uh, with that, and we created our first catalog with that, and uh, we had... A little free office space that uh, this guy Steve Rowe had, was generous enough to give us, and uh, we didn't really know what we were doing, but we built relationships and uh, and we worked hard, and uh, we you know we made it through that that really critical startup inertia time, right? Yeah. Well, was yeah. that scary? Because at the time, because just for people who don't know, so Flywater is a travel booking company. Right. I work with you guys. I've started sending clients through you guys because I know that they're going to get the service that they need. And quite frankly, it's just, it's way easier for me to hand them off to you guys because from start to finish, they're taken care of. It costs them nothing. Right. So at the time, there was what, Frontiers... There was the Reading Fly Shop. The, right, know. yep, the Fly Shop. Was <laughs> Yellow Dog around yet? No, definitely not. And uh, and there was no shops like Bob Marriott's. There was Kaufman Streamborn. There was an influential company that was definitely deep into its falling phase. But, uh, you know, there's Fishing International there. And right, right. Lonnie Waller had worked there. And yeah. then, 
And actually, the company Fish About was a break <coughs> off uh, from Fishing International. And so there's a number of different people that were really influenced by that company as well. But so it's not that Flywater was really that original of an idea, but it certainly wasn't something that occurred to me to start. Uh, right. <laughs> well, let me ask you this, because nowadays it seems like everybody's running travel. Would you have had the balls to start it now in with the market being so saturated? Or do you think that your timing was right? I think our timing was fair, but you could have been, you know, what we were worried about when we started, before we started, was actually that there wouldn't be space at any of these places and that we couldn't get people in. But then, right when we started, the dot-com bubble burst mm. and the economy took a real dive. And... Honestly, that led to some opportunity for us. And, and and so, you know, was our timing good? I don't know. I uh I think it was I think it was fine. I think it would have been better if we'd started earlier. Um what year was this, Kim? This was in it was sort of ninety nine. Oh, okay. Got yeah, it. yeah. And and then yeah, and what I've had the courage to do it today. I don't know, maybe. Maybe if I had the right cheerleader saying you could do it, but um, I think it would be harder. And I also think that there's enough semi-amateurs in the travel game today to some degree taking a bit of advantage of the system. Like, hey, you know, I'm a, I'm a big wheel. I can bring you a lot of people. I'm a host. I can, you know, do this and that. That the that the operators are tired of being taken advantage of by false promises. And, and, yeah. uh, and so, and that was one of our big battles is how do we get these people to believe that we're for real and that we're going to succeed? Unfortunately, my background in the industry, you know, I got, you know, people to write letters, you know, Brian O'Keefe and John Randolph and, you know, X, Y, and Z to say something encouraging about where they thought we would go right and that helped uh, and so yeah I don't know if I'd have the courage to do it today I'd like to think that I would you know uh, so much of our business has always been about building trust-based relationships but you need that opportunity to get your foot in the door to to do that even so yeah maybe well, maybe I would well, that's, that's a totally fair answer. Yeah. Now, you mentioned building trust-based relationships. You are well-known apart from Flywater. Do you think that that helped people knowing who you are through your photography and your flies, which I'm going to dive into in just a minute? Yeah. Um, it, it certainly helped in the early days that I had some credibility in the industry. And if there were people who were respected industry leaders who said, yeah, you know, what what Morish and Geese are going to do is going to be good and it's going to work. That really helped. Did it draw customers to us? No. Not as much. No. Did you ever want your face on the company? Uh, or did you want to be kind of behind the scenes? No, I was, I, I was, I was, I was and always have been sort of happy being the face of Flywater and uh and, and I'm and I've also been happy saying, you know what, the business smarts of Flywater are all 
my partner Brian, you know. But I I brought and developed the vast majority of the early pivotal relationships that helped us survive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm super happy and, and, and proud of that. And, and, you know, I really, I love people and I love all kinds of different people. And I, I tend to think the best of people. I'm trusting. I'm a trusting fool. No, it's not a bad thing. Yeah. But I, and so I like people and, and, you know, that's what I enjoy about flywater travel, you know, as we get to deal with the best and the brightest people and they're planning something that they are so looking forward to Mm -hmm. and we get to really help them and advise them. And we don't have an agenda. Our agenda is to help them find what they're looking for. And, you know, for that reason, our company today represents far more locations than is ultimately practical. You know, if we have a 175 people that we work with around the world that's a lot of stuff to keep track of and but it's very beneficial to the consumer because we can compare and contrast places and you know help them find price points or help them find availability during a time window which they need to hit so there's always different things that are beneficial there and um that trust-based stuff that we're working towards, you know, we want trust-based relations with outfitters and with clients Mm -hmm. and, and we want long-term relationships. So, you know, I think we have a a reputation of being really honest and, and high integrity because we're not into a one-time sale. We want to be, we want to be a resource. Coming up, Ken speaks honestly with me about his fly designs, his photography, and his conservation efforts. Again, just a quick thanks to Peak Fishing for making this conversation possible. Peak products are manufactured and assembled in Loveland, Colorado in the USA. They offer a wide range of fly tying vices and accessories at great prices and can be found at www.peakfishing.com. P-E-A-K fishing.com. So when you and I were chatting, you very kindly sent me a link to Umqua for me to be able to see the flies that you've designed. How many are there? There's over 20. Oh, yeah, there's <laughs> definitely over 20. I mean, there's three pages. Yeah, I think, you know, with, uh, with if you look at, you know, skews with or without a bead head or with a tungsten bead or size, shape, and color, you know, I think that when it really comes down to size, shape, colors, and different models, there's, you know, maybe... 250 skews, and and, and how many patterns is that? I don't know, but it's probably, I don't know, maybe it's 40 or more or something like that. So I don't know. It's a a good number. Most of it's kind of trouty because that's where the, Mm -hmm. that's where the fly that's where the fly market is. Totally. I've had, I've had manufacturers or fly companies ask me to sell my patterns and they'll say, but we really want, I mean, you still have patterns of great April, but we really want your trout flies. And I'm going, my trout flies are the flies that you guys sell. Like I don't have my own trout patterns. Um, so talk to me a little bit about trout flies. And then I want to dive into some of your other patterns. Yeah. What, uh, what's your most popular or your most famed trout fly? You know the 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 best selling is definitely the Moorish hopper, and it's a, a foam hopper. It was 
most of my patterns were originally designed for the now defunct Idlewild company. That's who I signed with originally. And I wanted a, a smaller company where the stuff that I was contributing would be seen more and shown more by the reps. And that was a great move and that was a great company. It was a great ride. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. And so the, the hopper, uh, you know, I think it's still the best selling hopper in the country. And it was flat out rejected by Idlewild the first time I submitted it. Why? Uh, you know, they gave me stuff like, oh, foam is dead and blah, 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 blah. Uh, but everyone that I showed it to was very interested in it with the exception of them. And I was pissed. I didn't didn't tie new patterns for them for a couple of years. And then I resubmitted <laughs> it and it became the best-selling fly in the history of their company. Oh, see, there you go. Yeah, and it was, and it was funny. And I spent a lot of time working on that thing. You know, I had a grasshopper with a pin through it sitting in my in my fly tying cabin and I just looked at that and I was like how do you get that body shape and I ended up you know sort of sculpting foam and and does and, it take a long time to tie uh it it takes a bit of time to shape and then once it's shaped I slit its belly and I lash it onto a hook so the tying with thread doesn't take any time but you know everyone thinks there's some kind of stamp where you stamp yeah, this thing no. out of foam but no you gotta <laughs> you gotta make it and, and and shape it and so that takes time i'd like to see the people who mass produce them I'm, I'm sure they're just awesome to watch in terms of how efficient they are with it but if i had to tie one for you right now you know it, it would be awkward and i probably wouldn't be proud of it i i, I don't think i've tied one for a long long time so it happens when you can buy them and have someone else tie them. no doubt and, and that's one of the fun things about designing flies is i can design something that's elaborate and that i like and that i'm proud of and that i don't have to tie again and uh, and i'm very willing to do that and some of my stuff you know is kind of complicated as a result uh, but it becomes someone else's problem yeah. <laughs> I'm okay with that do you ever tie patterns just to design a pattern for a company or are these all patterns that you've really used and you're confident with uh, no both uh, uh, a lot of times I, I dig into a project and I go oh, there's a, a niche that needs to be filled like the market doesn't have a you know a, a cricket or the market doesn't have the right type of weighted sculpin or whatever so I'll, I'll, I'll look at some things in terms of a niche or need and I might develop and then testify in that way so I'm somewhat calculating in how in, in what I go about designing and so I don't design very many steelhead flies because steelhead fly anglers tend to be fly tires yeah and steelhead or steelhead so they're not really that fussy you know there's, there's cool steelhead flies but you know does anything work better than a piece of black bunny on a hook you know i don't i don't i couldn't tell you that yes does. an <laughs> orange bead on the front of that piece of exactly, and it's so simple. It's, uh, we just tie fancy for ourselves. Uh, we do, and it's so fun. And I and I'm 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 still into that. And I I love steelhead fly tying. But if I look at fly tying as a business, I don't spend the majority of my time on that. Right. There are certain functional things you know I want out of 
out of steelhead flies, uh, you know, like, you know, the palm skater is like, oh, I wanted a fly. Which you just, so, cause yeah. this is important to me. Uh-huh. You designed the palm skater. Yeah. We love the palm skater. <laughs> Did you did you take after another fly when you did? Well, uh, to a slight degree, uh, David Lamb Broughton had given me a piece of thick foam in 1999 uh, that he had gotten from Rainey's, I think. And he had this thick black foam, and he had a very simple fly where it was this big chunk of black foam and it had a it was lashed down in the middle and it had some rubber legs sticking off of it and it was tied on an egg hook and they called it a spider or something oh like he that. gave me one on the dean once that's right the exactly spider. Yeah, yeah and uh and while i guess that was if if anything had an influence on the palm it was that but my idea is like no i want to fly that you know doesn't have rubber legs and that has some you know more water pushing abilities and i want to fly that rides high in the front and rides really ass low in the back so that it doesn't get pushed away by fish and so that's why the palm has a lot of taper to it and i want to fly that doesn't need to be riffle hitched and and so those were the criteria and and I also uh I first started tying the palms in a tan color. And uh one of my early trips up to the Bulkley, a guy named Clint Cameron looked at my flies and he goes, So is is you know, oh I think I tied a bunch in orange too. He goes, Well is, you know, is, is that your favorite color for a skater? And, you know, shit, I didn't caught very many fish on a skater then. And I said, oh, well, you know, uh, I don't really know. Well, maybe. <laughs> What's your favorite color? Yeah. And he said, black. I go, really? I, I think that you couldn't see black. And he goes, well, everyone thinks you can't see black. But when you want to fish a skater, especially early and late in the day, mm-hmm. you know, the there's a lot of white and gray being reflected off the surface of the river. And black shows up really well. It does, yeah. I was like, wow, okay. And so that's how I came to black. And I tie them in tan now also in the tube. That's my follow-up fly. But, yeah, so the palm was really deliberate. That's what I wanted, and I wanted that for my own fishing. And and so that was its origin. Where did the name come from? It's really short for pompadour. Oh. And a pompadour is a hairdo that flows up in the front <laughs> like the head of that skater. Got it. That's a that's a good name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the pompadour. And, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, but, you know, the trout, the trout fly tying in some ways is more interesting because I can really delve more into size, shape, and color, and I can really get into what I call the profile of flies. Like when I think of trout fly tying... I said, man, my main criteria is that if I could hold this fly up and just see a black silhouette of it, that it would be accurate and 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 really resembling what I'm imitating. And I feel that a lot of tires think they know what they're imitating and think that what they're tying looks like that. But... Uh, I'm pretty, I have a real critical eye for that. And so I go, oh, you know what? You know, 
bugs have six legs and and bugs you know have have this proportional scheme you know their legs go to this part so i i kind of really break it down i really look at things and i try to get all of my proportions right and all of my silhouette right and i try to typically make my trout flies out of uh, accessible and economical materials and i tend to tie more in series, meaning like, oh, I want to get a, a, a certain design and expand that from small to large as opposed to just introducing a fly. Oh, here's my green number 14 nymph. And I was like, no, I'm going to have a series of nymphs that address a need that I see, and I might have it in three other colors as well. So I don't know. I've got a pretty <laughs> – it might be the one portion of my life where I'm kind of – anal organized uh you know scientific you know i'm 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 sort of that way about fly tying and i'm not really that way elsewhere in my life oh that's fair <laughs> do you think that the more natural a fly looks the less likely it is to work i mean i've heard people say oh it looks too much like the real thing oh the more like hyper realism and stuff yeah i think that hyper realistic flies is that what Are, they're calling it? Hyper yeah, well, you know, you, you see someone who ties a, you know, a stone fly and you look at it and you're like, oh my God, it looks exactly... It's identical. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that those are very effective. Yes, yeah, so why is that? Well, I think there's a, a number of things. I think, you know, sometimes people make a lot of sacrifices in the selection of the materials to get it to look hyper-realistic. So it's made out of weird plastics and it's stiff and it doesn't have any life to it or it doesn't have the right density. So if I am tying a, a salmon fly or a hopper, I go, well, shit, I want this thing to land like a hopper. I want it to make the same noise and splash and I want it to float in the film the same way. So then I'm, I'm backing into it that way, mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to carving it out of wood to make it look real or something like that. <laughs> right. You know? And so, um, so yeah, I do think that if you get really overly realistic, you pigeonhole what it is to represent. And, you know, a lot of times we think we're matching the hatch, but we have no freaking idea what we're doing or what the fish thinks it is. No. And so, you know, my favorite nymph is my most generic nymph, you know, Which a dirty bird. And uh, Dirty Bird is, is sort of a variation off of Cowbird's Bird's Nest and uh, I make it in three colors and I make it in a lot of different sizes and it works for a lot of different little bugs. And that's, that's, so it's really simple, you know, and, and I do have some simple patterns like, you know, Moorish Mouse is really simple. It's a three step fly. But it is really functional. It's engineered right, you know, where it tends to land right. It tends to cast easily with light line weights. It tends not to sink. And, and so it's become a really good and widely recognized fly uh, just because it's simple and functional. So, yeah, I think simple is good. And, and, I, and I also think that... You know, that you look at certain things. I still think the mayfly has never, adult mayfly has never been tied properly. And I'm, you know, working on some stuff. But when I look at how insects sit on the water and the imprint and the impression that they leave on the surface film and where the body is in relation to the hackle, you know, I still feel like, oh, 
there's tons of room for improvement. And I have a infinite reservoir of ideas for improving flies. And I have less time to execute that. But uh, yeah, so I, I think I'll be producing stuff for a long time and it's just going to be the discipline to you know check off okay here's the here's the new here's the new mayfly people and uh, and here's you know the new x y and z so I've, I've, I've got a lot of i don't think i'll ever run out of gas for that stuff it's just uh, i need to make a little more time well now that you've said that i bet you you're gonna see some new mayfly patterns come out <laughs> oh yeah so you said something interesting you said it's a variation and i hear people all the time say there are no new flies there's just you know versions of flies prior do you think that holds true um do you think it's like fashion do we keep coming back around no i think it's more of a a building off of a foundation i don't think it comes back around uh i think that fishing styles come back around and 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 fishing trends and fashionability, you know, like hardy reels and cane rods, that's coming back around, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that fly design is, is is a little bit more like technology or something where good ideas keep getting used and adapted and potentially improved upon. And so, yeah, I, I do think that there are still original things being done in fly tying. But I think it's increasingly difficult to find tires and ideas that come up with stuff that are that are truly out of the box. Like the late Bob Quigley, uh, friend and a guy who you know whose whose career I followed ever since I was a little kid and only met much later in my life in Ashland and and, and became friends with. You know he was out of the box. Like, he did shit that was totally original. Like how so? What was something Well, original? you know, he invented the egg-sucking uh, idea. <laughs> uh, he, but he, did he, though? Because the Dallas was technically an egg-sucker, and that was, you know, 100 years old. Well, he thought he invented the egg-sucker. Sorry, I don't mean to put it Yeah, yeah, yeah and, uh, but what he did that was really original, like this hackle-stacker method of hackling, or he was the first guy to deliberately make a half in the a half dry fly, half wet fly, like the true. Well, like it's a muffler. Is it no, no, the cripple, like something that that is a is a mayfly that's dead drifted, oh. where the front half of it's out of the water <laughs> yeah. and the tail end of it's in, and it's something in the midst of metamorphosis and it's specific. So he came up with. Um, a lot of important ideas that that persist today, mm-hmm. and so yeah, it's a lot of modification, and it is increasingly difficult to come up with something that's truly unique and original. But it continues to happen, and it will continue to happen. It'll just be a small percentage of what happens. Yeah. <laughs> So here's um, here's something that's always kind of gotten to me, and, and it's kind of the elephant in the room for me. Fly boxes. Let me let me start over. When you're in a fly shop and they have the the cases full of flies, one of my big pet peeves is looking in those cases, specifically at steelhead flies, and seeing flies that are designed by manufacturers. I don't even know if anyone would put their names on some of these flies. They've been designed by somebody nameless 
to look good in the box, but they don't look great in the river. So for example, I, I obviously am a huge fan of Rhea, and I've seen flies that try to maybe imitate something like an intruder, but they're using cheap materials that look similar to Rhea in the box, but they don't have the same function in the water. Um, I mean, do you think there's a lot more of that these days? Where, Or has it always been like that, Whereas, where there's flies that just look good in the box to sell to the consumer, but they don't necessarily act that great in the water? Well, I mean, I think that bin uh, appeal is at times... Bin appeal. Yeah. Thank is, you, that's is, what it is. Is at times, you know, really important to to shops and sales. And there's some, you know, there's some flies that have great bin appeal and great fishing appeal. But there's also, you know, lots of horribly overdressed flies, you mm-hmm. know. Like if I look at it in, in, in the steelhead world, I say, God, you know, these, these guys have, you know, made this elaborate underbody yeah. and then they ribbed it and then they put a palmered hackle over it <laughs> and then they put a hackle and then they put three colors of marabou over yes. that and, and all you can really see is the last color of marabou when it's in the yes, water and I'm just like I, yes, that's I, stupid I know what you're talking about yeah. and yeah. so I do think that the there dry is dry fly marabou wet fly thing that takes a billion casts to sink exactly so I do think that it, it's easy to have a disconnect with, with flies that may appear cool at one level but if you really look at them and analyze them properly you go well that's stupid you know or that's gonna that's a nice idea but it's gonna swim upside down or it's gonna helicopter through the air and i've made these mistakes too you know i brought stuff out too early where i'm like ah this is awesome (laughs) and then come to find out that oh it's flawed And, and so i think that that's it's easy for manufacturers of any sort mm. to release something prematurely that wasn't as well thought out as it should have been. In, in any industry, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, and fly, flies are certainly part of that. Do you think the consumer is a little bit wary about who to trust these days? Because it's like you see all these people trying to become famous in this industry and so many people trying to put their names on flies um, recently. And then you've got the manufacturers trying to sell bin appeal. Is there a point where the consumer just goes, God, I really just don't know who to trust anymore? And they turn back to the old flies that, that they'd heard about from years past? I, I, I don't think so. I, I think that the consumer, they have different habits, but that a consumer has to you know, have some type of trust-based relationship with somebody. Mm-hmm. That, that might be someone at a fly shop, it might be a website, it might be in themselves. And, you know, and, I, and, and while I'm in love with flies, I also am amazed how much faith people put in flies, especially when discussing you know, fishing for steelhead. That, you know, fly doesn't matter that much. You know, fishing properly mm-hmm. matters. And and so, you know, I obviously get a lot of calls about flies. And these guys are like, man, I need to have the right fly. And I'm like, you know what? You need to fish the water properly. That's, yeah. that's first and foremost. And so, yeah, it's a fine line. I do think in trout fishing that it's different. That there, there's a lot of that's what I'm talking stuff. about. Yeah, and... Yeah. and, and and uh, and in trout fishing, you know, trout fishing is technical, and steelhead fishing is 
persistence-based. Fair enough. I'll let you have that one for now. (laughs) Let's talk about your photography. I didn't really realize just how talented you were behind the camera until I started really looking into you and looking at Lonnie Waller's book and seeing a lot of your photographs. You're very talented behind the lens. No, thank you for giving us these awesome photos. So when did that start? Was that just a natural progression in the industry? Kind of, but you know, it really, my interest in it really started with this guy, Andy Puyans, when I was a kid and you know, he He was really influential for you. Oh, he he was huge. I mean, by far the, the, he was the, you know, arguably the most influential person, certainly in my, in my fly fishing path, you know, I mean, my, my parents are influential, but but Puyans really, um, he there was something romantic about what he was doing, and and he was really great about you know a teaching me how to tie well and the importance of of doing something very proper like he was un, he was, he was relentless and unforgiving he would light our flies on fire no way put, oh yeah if we didn't tie him right you know and i uh, like this man oh yeah if our duck quill wings weren't perfect he'd come and torch it with a lighter and when you're <laughs> bobbing hit the table you're like oh i guess i fucked up you know, yeah. I guess I didn't tie that right <laughs> and so they were tough and so he would tend to drink you know half a bottle or a full bottle of Johnny Walker and then do slideshows. And he'd do slideshows from the Henry's Fork and stuff. And he would do these late night slideshows of fishing. And I remember just being wowed by the beauty of it. And I was like, oh, that's so pretty. And those pictures are pretty. And so, uh, yeah, in high school, I got a, a camera, kind of a waterproof, durable camera, a Fuji camera. It was really cool. And I loved that thing. And then when I graduated from college, I got my first SLR and I went off to Alaska and started guiding. And, and yeah, for me, photography was just based in wanting to share the beauty of what was around me. I spent a lot of time outdoors as a kid. I did lots of, lots of backpacking and lots of canoeing and lots of fishing and, and I was moved by that, and <laughs> photography was was my way to share that. And and still, that's kind of the way I feel. Like if I'm out and it's it's really beautiful out, I want to I want to capture and share it, you know. And I want to arrange it in such a way that it's most appealing. And so I, that's. That's what photography is for me in a nutshell is, is, is sharing the, the beauty of the experience and, and I'm, I'm into I'm into shape and texture and color and composition and I love all those things and I don't I don't tire of them so that's uh, that's the root of, of what I'm doing and you still love it I really love it I, I, I like it even more I don't sell images as regularly as I used to back in the slide days I sold lots of images and to, to magazines and things like that but that takes a lot of time and energy and and certainly the photography industry is different I feel like a it was more difficult to do good work with slides mm. uh, and and less people were doing really great work. And I feel with the digital revolution, which I was pretty slow to embrace, that there's an emergence of talent that's, that's it's incredible. I mean, people are doing stuff with their 
iPhones or, you know, or doing stuff post-production uh, that are amazing. And people are shooting lots of images and equipment's great. And it's just, it's really led to all these people doing fabulous, new, interesting work. I'm in, I'm in awe of what I yeah. see. It's, it's everywhere. And I feel like, you know, I sort of feel like my work's kind of old man-ish in the, <laughs> in the way that it, 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 my work isn't very edgy. My work's pretty Classic. classical. Like, oh, yeah, I put the subject in that place, and I like blah, 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 blah. I don't do weird, you know, I don't do a bunch of weird angular, you know, off-center stuff. My stuff's pretty pretty lined up. And and uh, and I think it's great that, that the industry's going that way. But also, you know, I don't try to sell images as much now because... There are so many people with this great work, and they want recognition. Mm -hmm. And so they're willing to make their stuff available to people for free or next to nothing. Mm -hmm. Or you get publications, you know, this this wave of digital magazines, and they would like to pay you exactly nothing for your work. Mm -hmm. And so as I, I look at the business of fly fishing photography I've backed way away from that and go you know what I'm better off designing flies yeah. and, and so I've just moved away from it but I'm I am as interested uh, as ever in, in doing photography and I've and I feel like uh, I feel like my work's improving uh, but my ability to spend the time to share that work with others is diminished because of fly water you know i i yeah. I'll use it for the for, for our business yeah but it's it it takes time and energy to get it beyond that so that others can see it yeah there's only so many hours in a day exactly so you told me earlier that you're part of the salmon association um which, well which no i'm on the board of directors of a uh, I'm, I'm a board of director for the wild salmon center Okay, so the Wild Salmon Center. Can you tell me a little bit more about the foundation? Yeah, well, it's a really it, it's a very interesting organization. It's uh, based uh, in Portland, Oregon. It was, you know, originally established by Pete Sovereign. What what this organization has become is really the world leader in trying to protect Pacific salmon and steelhead on a more global or range-wide scale. Did it start in Russia? No, but it became known... I mean, yes and no. Pete Sovereign's original work had a lot to do with Russia, and he used the establishment of the Wild Salmon Center in part to gain access to Kamchatka steelhead and fish those fish which were listed on the Russian Red Book, which is an endangered species. And he said, hey, we're going to use affluent traveling fly anglers to collect important data for research using fly fishing as a non-lethal means of data collection. And so that was... So already a couple of important things have been established, and one is that he was working internationally. Today, though, what's interesting about the Wild Salmon Center is they're interested in the entire range of Pacific salmon, meaning from Japan 
all the way up through Sakhalin Island, all the way up through the Sea of Ohotsk, Kamchatka, the Aleutians, Alaska, British Columbia, Washington, Oregon, and California. Let's say that that's the range. So no Atlantic salmon? No. Pacific salmon. They have six species of Pacific salmon, but that's Japan, Sakhalin, Sea of Ohotsk, Kamchatka. Okay. The other side, the Kola, which is, you know, 5,000 miles away and above Europe, you know, that's Atlantic salmon. Right. And they might become involved in a limited way there, but they're about Pacific salmon. And the real mission of the Wild Salmon Center is to protect what we call wild salmon strongholds. And a stronghold concept is basically that, hey, we are not going to throw money at at damaged systems that are uh, compromised like the Sacramento system or like the Columbia system, sadly. And we have a lot of compromised systems. And it's not that they are against people throwing money at those, but they're like, man, that's expensive and it's ineffective and we already have a compromised genetic base. What we want to do is we want to find the healthiest, most vibrant systems in the world, and we want to lock those up and save those for the future so that there is an intact genetic repository, if you will, that can deal with the ecological ecological challenges that are ahead of us, like climate change. And so if you have these really strong places, those are the places when the shit really hits the fan and it gets worse that are going to have the best places of surviving. And those are the places that are going to be able to send out (laughs) messengers, if you will, to recolonize. uh, And and that's not going to be happening from the genetic stocks of the upper Columbia. Right. So what would an example be of a truly uncompromised, healthy system? Well, you know, one system that they've done a lot of work on is like the Ho River in Washington. That's pretty pretty high-integrity system. Yeah, it's got a lot of fans and a lot of angling pressure, but high level of genetic integrity, mostly wild fish, uh, you know, it, it has a lot of the criteria. You know, the Smith River in Northern California, you know, I think that they're, that's just coming onto their radar, but, uh, you know, that's a, that's a great system. Um, virtually, you know, all the systems of Bristol Bay, Alaska are free from hatchery influence. They're the most productive salmon habitat in the world, so the stuff that's affected by the proposed pebble mine, you know, perfect example of a whole stronghold region. The Kamchatka Peninsula is a great example of of places that really aren't suffering from the adverse effects of, of human contact, you know. And one of the ones that's really drawing me closer to the organization is their involvement in the Skeena watershed. And so, again, Wild Salmon Center is neat because they'll play at a really high level and get high-level leaders to the table in all kinds of different countries as opposed to just their region. They're looking at the big, long-term picture. They're the only organization in the world that see salmon and steelhead in that broad view. Mm. And so... Yeah, that's attracted me to them. 
and, and the fact that they've said, okay, we're going to step up our efforts on the Skeena watershed and support and fundraise and use our clout to to basically back up and build up organizations like Skeena Wild, who are local, you know, that's like, okay, that, that turns me on and that makes me want to spread that good news to our steelhead fishing base and such. Can we talk a little bit about what's happening in the Skeena watershed? Obviously, there's a whole litany of threats facing the Skeena watershed and, and, and literally billions of dollars of proposed development money you know, linked to the piping and processing of, of LNG and that, you know, that is, let's say, let's say that's the primary threat. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of big economic interests doing that and, and driving for that, including, you know, President of, of Canada, you know, he's, you know he, he, Blair wants this, this thing to be, you know, the, the, Canada to be the energy superpower and the Skeena to be a corridor to get that energy to the ocean. So that's maybe the single largest problem. There's a whole bunch of other problems that we could talk about uh, forever. But what uh, the Wild Salmon Center wants to do is, with the encouragement of the Moore Foundation, who has supported both the Wild Salmon Center and Skeena Wild, Mm -hmm. Moore has said, hey, Wild Salmon Center, why don't you help build Skeena Wild? And and, and so, you know, uh, Wild Salmon Center has lots of heavy-hitting U.S. donors, lots of grant money, lots of technical know-how how to to do a lot of different things, quite frankly. And the Wild Salmon Center isn't really obsessed with having their name on the front page of things. They have yeah, noticed that. They're kind of like the superheroes who come in from behind the scenes and just... They do a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, and it's not that it's not... It's not that they are avoiding the spotlight, but they're yeah focusing on what needs to be done, and they have built up lots of organizations and started lots of organizations in the process and they're they they're looking for the end result and it doesn't have to be you know stamped with their name so building up Skeena Wild is one of those deals where they're going to do a lot of fundraising and they're going to push that money straight to Skeena Wild so they can be as effective as possible in the watershed. And to date, that's been effective, and I think it's really optimistic what's going to happen in the future with that as well. Cool. I'm really excited that you brought that up. Is there <laughs> anything that you would like to add or ask me? Uh, are we fishing together tomorrow, or are you out of here? Well, I think you're being guided tomorrow. Not by you? No. Uh, well, I'm gonna... up here just to see you, and I'm on a do-it-yourself trip, I think. Uh, good. Well, we might be on the skinny here with you tomorrow. Well, uh, as long as I don't have to follow you through a run, we're in good shape. I don't want to follow your ass <laughs> through a run either. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Before booking your next trip, be sure to call Flywater Travel at 541-488-7159 and let them know that you listen to Ken's podcast here on Anchored. Thanks for listening.